Welcome to brand new podcast, Chronic Illness and Me, hosted by me, Holly Fleet, better known as Stoma Babe. On the podcast each week, I will speak with a public figure or social media influencer on how they live their lives with a chronic illness. There's no subject I won't cover. From diarrhea to depression, no topic is off limits when you are in the hot seat with me. I hope you enjoy the show and keep the questions coming in over on Instagram. You can find the podcast page at chronic illness underscore and me. So today we have Geordie on the podcast and she's come all the way from Australia to us via Zoom. And today she's sat in her car in what I can see looks like a sunny Adelaide, but apparently there has been a few storms about. So we're going to chat about her experience with Crohn's disease. So right. hi. Yeah, <laughs> got your coffee already for for our chat. Is it a coffee? Yeah, I got my coffee already. My morning coffee can't start the day without a coffee. Are you like an early morning person or are you a late person? Yeah, I feel like I'm an early morning person. I'm always getting up like heaps early, and then I go get a coffee, go for a drive, and sit by the beach. But then at the same time, I feel like I need a good sleep in once in a while. Yeah. But- I just can't sleep in later than like eight o'clock these days. I'm always up and I feel like I'm going to be doing something constantly. And you've just come out of hospital as well, haven't you? You had a stint <laughs> while you were in the hospital. So how long have you been out for now? Like what's going on with you? I reckon I've been out for about four weeks now. So right. I've been there for about two days. I've been mm. out for four weeks. I'm going back in next Wednesday okay. for another. Okay. Yes. What operation is it that you're going to be having? So we're just going to do an EUA, which is like an examination under anesthesia to have a look at some, um, just like my perianal stuff that's going on. So I've got like all of those fistulas and abscesses that form. So basically we're just going to do an EUA, do a big clean out of all of those, put in some new seton janes, and we might revise my stoma, which I'm a bit nervous about. Oh, okay. Why is it because you've been having blockages with your stoma? Yeah. So Basically, I had this this weird thing called pyoderma and it's mm. like it formed this big wound around my stoma and it was all of these ulcers and everything. It's like a big crater around it. So eventually we got it to like mostly heal. There's still some ulcers there. But um, when it healed, it formed like this scar tissue and the stoma has like retracted and it's not it's not working. So pretty much I grow more out of my bum than I do out of my bag. <laughs> Oh, wow. Is- so you're still having bleeding and things coming from your bottom area as well. Yeah, it's a loop. I get basically 90% of like my output comes out through my bum and I get only about 10% through my bag. Wow. It's- yeah, it's so annoying. And that's due to your, Crohn's, to your Crohn's disease that that's causing that to happen. Yeah, and because it's a loop ostomy, basically like the... It's a loop colostomy. So the, the large bowel isn't actually fully disconnected. It's just right. sort of folded like a garden hose and then sewn to the skin. <laughs> it's so confusing. I think for some people it's so confusing. Even for me, like obviously I have a stoma as well, but everybody's stoma yeah. is very different. There's not just like one type of stoma. There's like an end, like an end stoma, loop yeah. stoma. There. Like there's just so many different but- types. No, and I had no idea that there were so many types. I thought it was literally just they disconnect the bowel and they sew it. I thought yeah. that was literally. I didn't realize they could do like all these loop things. Or there's like loop ostomies, double barrel ostomies, all sorts of like interesting ostomies, and I had no idea. So 
But I feel like, obviously, I first discovered you on TikTok and I feel like just immediately, like, you know, you've been talking about so many different things that I've never heard of in terms of inflammatory bowel disease. I thought I knew a lot of stuff, but actually seeing you, you were talking about things that I'd never heard of. So kind of like, could you explain kind of what your experience has been like with Crohn's disease? Like when were you first diagnosed with it? Like how did it all kind of get to this place that you're at right now? Like how did it escalate like this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And what you said before about, how you discovered me on TikTok and I was talking about things that you hadn't heard about. That's why I felt when you talked about your mucus fistula the other day. I yeah, had exactly. no, no idea. And I had been wanting to know because I think you'd posted things previously, like before your most recent surgery, you posted things. And I was like, I, I searched what a mucus fistula was and I'd seen like heaps about it on Google when I'd been looking at like, um, you know, information about ostomies, but I had no idea what it was. So TikTok is so educational, I swear. I can't believe you'd even heard of what a mucus fistula was, to be honest, because I had I'd never heard of that ever before. And I feel like even now that I have on myself, I don't see that many people ever speaking about. And I don't know if it's like there's not many people that have one or they're just too embarrassed to talk about it, because obviously it's literally when it's very active, it's the same as pretty much having like two stomas. That's kind of what it's like. Um, So I think a lot of people get embarrassed about that as well. So, yeah, it's one of those things that's just never really ever mentioned. Doctors don't Tell you about it either because they don't want to freak you out before surgery um yeah and oh you oh by the way you're gonna have to have two like you're gonna yeah. have to wear two no one wants to tell you like no one wants to give that news no but yeah no, no it was really not so basically I was diagnosed with Crohn's when I was I think nine or ten wow um pretty, pretty interesting story it wasn't there's not like any um you know, long-winded diagnosis story. Mine was pretty quick. Yeah. I had been basically since birth, but yeah. nobody knew what was going on. So as a baby, I was an absolute nightmare. Like my parents would be driving around at like three in the morning trying to settle me as a baby because I had um, a lot of colic and reflux, which we now think was probably Crohn's as a baby. Um, so my first sort of symptom that I had was well I was actually going through my GP notes a little while back um and the first time I presented to the GP with any sort of Crohn's related symptom was when I was four years old and it was like these mouth ulcers and it was um oh there we go um so basically we um I went to the GP for these mouth ulcers and my whole mouth was just filled with these I don't know they were like little white dots and it was inflamed. My lips were literally like half the size of my face and my like the whole lower part of my face was just swollen. So no one could work out what that was. I had ultrasounds. We were looking at lymph nodes, glands, blah, blah, blah. No one ever worked out what it was. And um, years and years later, I got pneumonia. And when I went to the GP, they had a look at my bloods and my bloods were looking odd. I think my white cell count was high. My inflammatory markers were high. My iron was so low that I shouldn't have even been alive. Um, and yeah, it, like they were like, what's going on here? And honestly, we thought that I had celiacs because my mum is celiac. Right. So I was like, oh, okay. If it's cel- like, if it's celiacs, that's a good thing because then I can eat all the yummy salads that my mum gets to eat. Mm. Oh, I can have all the gluten-free food. And then I saw a gastroenterologist and he looked at my bum and was like, yeah, no, you've got Crohn's. We have to do colonoscopy and everything to 
diagnose it, but I'm pretty certain you've got Crohn's. Do you get mouth ulcers? And mum goes, oh, my gosh, yes. Oh. We were just like, wow, this thing that nobody could work out for years, someone suddenly asked about. And, um, yeah, so then I had a colonoscopy and an endoscopy. Um, <clears throat> and what happened with the colon? I'm trying to remember what happened so long ago now. I can imagine. Um, yeah, it was like at least, well, how old am I now? I'm 24. And this was like when I was, I think, nine or 10. So it's literally like 15 years ago. How did uh, that feel at that age? Like, especially like being told you're going to have to have like a colonoscopy as, as a child. I mean, and, and also for your parents as well. Like, this quite, and obviously, in, even as an adult, it's a very like, in, like personal yeah. experience like having a basically having a camera part of your bum is like yeah it's not fun so like when you're a child how do you understand that like how do you feel about that I must be were you awake like what was what was it like oh honestly I was pretty pretty scared because I didn't want to have to do the prep because mm. so basically got the history of um it's I think it's like familial adenopolyposis or something like that and it's like hey it's a Basically, it's it's a gene that we have in my family history, and my dad had been right. having yearly because of that because we have that gene. So I'd seen him go through the prep, and it was a nightmare. And I was like, I don't want to have to prep for a colonoscopy. That was the first thing I was petrified of the prep. Didn't want to have to drink the prep because apparently it's disgusting. So I didn't want to drink it. It is. I, <laughs> so gross. So I find. I didn't mind the idea of going under anesthetic because I, as far as I know, like, you know, you don't remember. I just knew that I would get put to sleep and I'd wake mm. up and everything was fine. But it was mostly the prep that scared me. Um, so then I went in to have it and the first time, so they had to do it through a nasogastric tube. Yeah. Like, like, time. So, and because I had issues with my nose, they had to sedate me to put the tube in. So it was um, like, it was so traumatic at the time. I did all the prep and it's like you're in a room full of people and then you've got to use the same bathroom and do this prep. And then they took my temperature. I had a fever and they were like, okay, we can't actually take you to theatre. So they cancelled my colonoscopy after I'd done the prep. And I was just, I literally said to my doctor, you're not on my Christmas card list this year. Like, I hate you. Um, Wow. We so I eventually had I eventually had the colonoscopy and it was all good. Like it was just, um, yeah, the prep was just a nightmare in the nasogastric tube. But yeah, I had the colonoscopy and it didn't. The colonoscopy was clear. Mm. We never got like the endoscopy showed that I had um, esophagitis, which is inflammation in your esophagus, and gastritis, the inflammation in my stomach. But we couldn't see any inflammation in the colon. And that's just because where my inflammation is, you can't reach it with an endoscope or a colonoscopy. So we did an ultrasound and that showed inflammation. So it all kind of confirmed it, but I never had a positive biopsy for Crohn's because it was not reachable. But that's funny because that actually happens a lot uh, quite frequently when I've spoken to people. Actually, the first time or even the second time they've had colonoscopies, nothing has ever showed up of the disease. And this is what's so difficult is because the, the disease can be anywhere or everywhere yeah. in your body. So to actually locate it with just a specific test is and then it like especially because obviously you have Crohn's, I have colitis with colitis. If it's not actually flaring up at the time and they do it to you, it's going to come out completely like negative with, with no result. Yeah. 
you have to be literally like having the ulcers going on everywhere and obviously sometimes it can just disappear on its own so it's really hard to get a positive like diagnosis on a day that you're actually flaring like it's and that's difficult though because well not on a day but in a period of time yeah. that you're actually and that's just difficult because usually I, I don't know about what your like what your public health system's like but without yeah. public health system you get booked in for a colonoscopy and you're given a date and it's like months in the future mm. and you don't get to change it. You keep that date and if you change it, it's going to be postponed for months and months. So it's just a bit of a nightmare. So you got to keep that date. And if you happen to be like not flaring on that day, you're stuffed because they're not going to see anything. So after you got your diagnosis at that age, like what did you first start taking what were you first prescribed to take it and how did that kind of affect you when you were at school and stuff like that with your classmates obviously who were also young and like how did you explain what was going on to your friends so at the time I think I was like I was functioning pretty normally I was doing sports and everything I don't know how I was with my iron levels being so low but yeah I was functioning normally they put me straight onto azathioprine which that I don't I forget what dose I was on, but I was on a pretty high dose and they put me on to prednisolone. Um, I was on and off of pred for about, I think it was a few years, I was on and off of it. And the dose that they gave me, I was literally on 40 to 50 milligrams and I was anywhere between 23 and 28 kilos. Like I was a miniature human and I was on so much prednisolone. So it was a nightmare. It was okay at first. It helped me put on a bit of weight and it helped me to like get a bit more energy and stuff. Then there came this one time where I took it and I ended up with steroid-induced psychosis. When And I was literally like 11 years old at this point. And yeah, ab- absolute nightmare. So at that point they were like, okay, we can't give her prednisolone anymore. She can't have steroids. So they put me on to the exclusive enteral nutrition where you drink the disgusting drink for six weeks and you're not allowed to eat. Um, we did that a few times. It helps like get me into remission for a short period of time and then it just stopped working. So at the time I sort of, I told my friends that I had been diagnosed with something called Crohn's disease, but I think cause I was so young, it wasn't really something that would be brought up in conversation that often at school the, the mostly the people I spoke to about it were my teachers and the, just the school in general so we had um a lot of special provisions put in place so that I could do um you know exams at my own pace and things like that I could have alternate dates for exams if I wasn't well enough on the day and I think it was high school that it was probably the hardest because mm. in primary school it wasn't really that big of a deal and my Crohn's even though it was bad it was sort of how I'd been living my whole life it wasn't like everything changed when I got diagnosed but then when I got to high school that's when things just started to like rapidly go downhill oh wow I can imagine because that's like when you're starting to kind of get interested in you know dating and and you want to make loads of friends and you're kind of really self-aware of your body and when you have mm-hmm. kind of get a changes a lot of people can like really gain lots of weight or lose loads of weight so you're like it's just this whole big like fishbowl and you just feel like you're being watched by everybody so to then be dealing with this horrible illness like I can't even imagine I'm I always say to myself I'm so like happy 
not happy, but grateful in a way that at least I was never diagnosed when I was like, you know, in yes. high school or college. Like at least it was when I was in my late later 20s when I was able to handle it better because, yeah, I think if I was younger, especially as a female, I would have really, yeah. really struggled with that. So, yeah, like what was your kind of experience of dealing with all of that kind of stuff, the whole being a teenager stuff? Yeah, but do you know what I always say? I always say, see, I say the opposite. I feel like I was lucky that I was diagnosed when I was young. And I mean, obviously in the long run, it works out that I'm not lucky because I've like, now I've exhausted every treatment at a young age. Yeah. But saying that, there was no point in my life where my life was like literally turned upside down. There was no point where it was like, yeah, normal life. And suddenly your life has been turned upside down and everything has to change. Whereas when you're diagnosed later, like, I suppose, I guess, like with your situation, did you go from living a like relatively normal life and then suddenly everything was just turned upside down? Yeah. Pretty much. Like, you know, I got diagnosed in 2020 and then yeah. by 2021 I was having a stoma bag. That yeah. Was it. It's it was a year. Yeah. And it's such a big life change. And to go from living a normal life to just suddenly everything you know is normal has changed. I feel like I was lucky that I didn't have to, I didn't have to go through that because it was sort of being sick was the only normal I ever knew. So I guess I can't miss my old life because I never really, my old life is no different to what it is now, except for obviously like it's a few bits and pieces that have changed, but, but yeah. Wow. So you say you've exhausted every treatment option now. And by that, do you mean as in like you've done, you you know, you've done all the biological drugs, you've done literally everything. How did, how did that escalate to the point where you kind of exhausted all of that? So when I, so I was put onto biologics within a year of being diagnosed, which is usually They're pretty rare. Like, yeah, it take it, like a lot of people. It takes years to get them mm. onto biologic, but it exhausts so many treatments beforehand. So I was on infliximab for about six years. Oh wow! And we, yeah. yeah, so we doubled the dose. We increased the frequency to six weekly, and then to four weekly because it just every time we did my um, metabolite levels, my body was just chewing through it. It was like they'd give me the infusion and the levels were not even detectable in my system. So it was like my body chewed through it. So throughout high school, I had so many hospital admissions with flare-ups. And because of my whole experience with steroids, they couldn't give me steroids to get the flare under control. Mm. I went through periods of time where I, again, did the enteral nutrition but I did it with a nasogastric tube. So I had that in for like close to a year and I had that through high school, but I guess I just covered it up with makeup and stuff. So it was visible, but, you know, I kind of made it work. Um, so we did that to try and get the immediate flares under control. And then obviously it wasn't working anymore. So they moved me, they kept me on infliximab this whole time. Then they gave me methotrexate as well which is a cytotoxic chemo drug. That was a nightmare. Sorry, I was going to grab a tissue because my nose is oh, no for some reason. It's actually funny that you should say about the um, infliximab and methotrexate that because my, wow, well, I don't talk about this much on my TikTok, but I actually have a brother who's three years younger than me that has suffered from Crohn's from the age of 17. Um, so he's yeah. kind of similar to what you were going through then. Like he yeah. was put on infliximab within a year of his Crohn's diagnosis and he's still on yeah. it now with the methotrexate stuff. So, but that stuff, obviously, you know, these chemicals that they're putting, they are keeping yeah. you alive and functioning, but 
they're the side effects and the stuff that they're putting into is so kind of dangerous right yeah absolutely and with methotrexate I just found that I would be it was this constant cycle because I would inject it one week I mean not one week one day I'd inject it and then I would go through days of feeling nauseous vomiting having this disgusting metal taste in my mouth and I'd go to school I'd be running back and forth from the class to the bathroom um and it, yeah, it was horrible. Then you'd get a day or so where you felt okay, but then it's injection day again. You've oh. got to inject yourself. It was just this constant cycle. So eventually I came off of that. I tried the tablet version and it was just the same thing and it didn't work as well either. So basically we did that. Then during this time I'd had a surgery called strictureplasty on my bowel. Right. It got to the point where I was admitted to hospital and I was put on to TPN, um, total parenteral nutrition. And they looked at my bowel and they were like, look, we're going to have to do something, but we don't want to remove the bowel because she's so young. That's what I was kind of saying to my parents. She's so young. We can't remove her bowel because she's got quite severe disease. She's going to need surgeries down the track. If we can avoid removing it at this point, then, you know, it's just going to prolong the lifespan of my bowel. So basically we did this procedure called strictureplasty. So they went in, it was a full open um, surgery and I was about 15, I think. 15. I think 15. Yeah. So they, there were three segments of about 25 centimetres. So all up nearly a metre of my bowel that was just beyond repairable so what they did was it was kind of like a garden hose situation again where they one way pulled it that way and then sewed it across so yeah they pretty much just pulled it in the opposite direction and sewed it across so that it dilated those narrowings Uh and able to pass through again so after that I got about I reckon I got six months to a year of I guess remission I wouldn't call it remission because I wasn't like in complete remission but it was the closest thing I'd ever had to being in remission I guess so yeah that was like that was really beneficial I bounced back from it so quickly I think like within I reckon it was within four weeks of that surgery my brother and I because we my brother had had heart surgery the oh, day wow. after I had our surgery so both of us and in different well so he and I were we went on a holiday, I think it was three or four weeks later, and the two of us were jumping off an like 10 meter bridge after we'd both opened <laughs> <laughs> So like, I bounced back pretty quickly from it. And I think it was a good six months to a year. I did have an admission to the hospital at about six months post-op, but then a year later was sort of when things went downhill again. And I think eventually. Oh, I'm just trying to think of what else we did in the meantime. So I think eventually it got me to like say my 18th birthday. Yeah. And hospital for my 18th. I was in there for my 16th as well. But um the 18th birthday, I went in the night before. Yeah. And it, I was booked in for a, another bowel surgery. And we were just going to remove this big segment of bowel. Because it right. was just so far. And it was all scar tissue as well. Hmm. And scar tissue you can't you can't reverse that all you can do is remove it so I was booked in and then on the day of my surgery they cancelled it because my anaesthetist had apparently spoken to 
the head of the IBD clinic at the adult hospital and they wanted to cancel surgery because they thought that there were more like treatments available at the adult hospital. Right. So at that point I moved over to the adult hospital and, pardon me, sorry, I moved to the adult hospital and they put me on to, I think they tried reinducing me to Humira again. Yeah. Um, I reintroduced, not Humira, sorry. They were reintroducing me to Infliximab. Yeah. That didn't work. Again, levels were just not even detectable. So they put me on to Humira. Yeah. So I was on that for a while. Then I had a reaction to it, which was just so typical. <sighs> so, and it was so frustrating because it might have worked. Who knows? It might have worked. But my belly, where I would inject it, would swell up like a tennis ball. Oh, God. So, yeah, it was awful. So we had to stop that. Then they put me on to, I think, Stellara, I tried. Um, so I was on that. That actually was quite good. Like, I feel like that worked for me to an extent. Like, it helped to an extent. Then I was on that for about three years. We tried doubling my dose, reintroducing it, doing all sorts, and it just wasn't cutting it. So I ended up having a BR section, and wow. I had that in 20. So at this point, they had kind of determined that I and I would mind you for about three years I was neglected by a particular place yeah they didn't yeah they they basically told me I had mild disease and I every time I try and call them I know it's crazy how can they tell you you've been on all these treatments that's just mental no and the funny thing is is that do you know what my disease might have been mild at the time like when I say mild in quotations because well the disease might have been under control by the medication, yeah. but yeah. getting there was that scar tissue and it was like 30 centimetres of scar tissue. Just at this point, my small bowel was larger than my colon, like the diameter. It was like twice the size of like the diameter of my colon. And mind you, the small bowel is literally like the diameter of your pinky finger. And it was swollen to the size of my, um, my colon. And yeah, so they... They even said to me like that my MRI was absolutely, they were so happy with it. It was perfectly fine. And I had the report in front of me and the report in front of me said that there was a 25 centimeter segment of bowel causing obstruction, which is potentially a medical emergency. And they told me on the phone that it was fine. So I had to present at another emergency room at a hospital where I knew had an amazing IBD team. And I just said, look, I'm having a bowel obstruction. I need a new IBD team. Do you want to help me out? And they helped me. So they ended up doing a bowel section. And this segment of bowel, I kid you not, that had been neglected for three years, it was, oh, it, it, it was, it looked like an angry sea monster. So my surgeon took photos of it during the operation and it was purple. Like it literally had all this yellow fat growing around it as well. And he said that in advanced disease, you see, the fat start to wrap around the bowel and strangle it. Wow. Yeah, my bowel was literally being strangled by fat tissue. It's, oh, it, the photo is amazing. Like, it's an incredible photo. And I'm so glad that he took it because I could actually see what was going on inside of my body. But yeah, so I had that. It's crazy. It just seems like, obviously, we talk so much about, like, medical gaslighting. And it's just a real thing oh. that you just never seem to get taken serious enough when you really, really need it. And it's like so frustrating. Yeah, it's awful. And the thing is, it's 
it's so frustrating because a lot of us with IBD have such complex, it's such a complex disease and everyone is so different. So it's kind of like, I feel like sometimes health professionals like to put us in the too hard basket because it's too much, like it's not that it's too much effort. There are certainly amazing healthcare professionals out there, but there are quite a few of them who will just like to put you in the too hard basket and kind of fob you off to the side because it's easier than having to dedicate your time to finding appropriate treatment options. And that's kind of what happened to me. I just, and there was years there where I didn't even know who to call. Like if I was having a flare up, I had no idea who to call. And all I got told was take some laxatives. Yeah. Who's like the mum with a bowel obstruction? Take laxatives. That's so frustrating. Yeah. So in that same year, I, so I had the bowel section and then that all went like semi okay. It was, it was pretty bad because I had an eyelid. So my bowel took like eight days oh, to wake up. The worst. And then you end up with a nasal, you had a nasogastric tube after your procedure, right? Oh, yeah. Um, Literally the worst thing ever. It's so uncomfortable. For those of you that don't know, like an NG tube basically is something they put up your nose and into the back of your throat to try to. I mean, I don't actually know really what. I think the function of it is that it it kind of takes out the stomach acid or something, or just like the stuff your stomach can't process. Yeah. So I think, like, especially if your bowel isn't waking up after surgery, to the best of my knowledge, um, they put it in to remove all of those gastric juices, all of your stomach contents. So if you're eating at the time, especially, it just sucks out all of those contents. It drains them out so that there's not pressure on your bowel. Because if your bowel's asleep and you're eating and drinking, anything that you put in is just going to sit there and cause you pain and vomiting because your bowel's still asleep. So, but but it's yeah, it's awful. So I had that highly spoken about. Like, it's never, you know, right, oh. as part of my surgery, I was never told anything about, like, an ileus yeah. or anything that those things could happen. It was just, yeah. I just woke up and it was going on. And I was like, well, sorry, what the hell is happening to me here? Like, yeah, why have you not told me this could happen? Literally. It's frustrating. I know. And it was... Look, I'm so, I'm incredibly lucky that I have the most, I, I can't praise him enough. I have the most amazing surgeon who, like I, I handpicked him as my surgeon because I, like I met with him once um, in regards to a surgery and I'd never met him before. And I said to my, the team at the time, I was like, look, I want him to do my surgery. I don't want anyone else doing my surgery. What is his name? Does he see patients privately? And I want a referral to him right now. So I got a referral to this particular surgeon and he was, he's incredible. Like to this day, he's literally my idol. I, I, I could not praise him enough, but he explained everything that could possibly go wrong. Really? That's so good. But at the same time, I'm also like, if I got told everything that would go wrong, I'd probably be like, nah, I'm not doing it. Surgery, Yeah. So I was kind of like, I was at the point where I, I knew that I was a bit like Murphy's law, everything that can go wrong will go wrong. So I was kind of, I was kind of prepared for things to go wrong. So I got the ileus and within four weeks of that surgery, of course, my Crohn's decided to come back. So I was just on and off of different treatments during this time to try and get it working, like try and get it back under control. And then about six months post-op, I was back in the hospital again with a blockage and we had to do another emergency bowel resection. So in that, I think I had something like nearly two foot of my 
small intestine removed in a year. It's like you literally would hardly have anything left by this point. It's mad. So we, we did that. And then, of course, within a couple of weeks of that, came back again. Oh. So they put me on to vedalizumab and then that didn't work. So then they put me on to infliximab again and we tried the injections, which I think are called like Remsema or something like that. No luck with that because I had antibodies to it. So then that brought me to the very end of my, I guess, very end of my treatment options. My surgeon applied for a drug called Sertilizumab and I think it's known as Simsia. Over oh, in the wow. US, they yeah, over in the US, they use it heaps for Crohn's, but here we can only get it in Australia for, I think, like, there's a couple of conditions and one of them is, like, rheumatoid arthritis. Right. So, yeah. So, and even I know of people who were in the clinical trial for it and they couldn't, even though it worked for them, at the end of the trial here in Australia, they got taken off the medication, even though it worked for them. No way. Um, yeah. So I thought there was no hope of me ever getting that medication, but my doctor somehow got a special approval and the hospital funded it for me. So I'm currently on that, but does it work? Mm-mm-mm-mm. So that kind of led me to where I am today. And now I'm just basically steroid dependent. Wow. So steroids, it's just like... I mean, so basically... You'd had so you'd had the surgeries done. You tried every single thing that was uh, available to you, pretty much in terms of pills, biologics, everything else. So that's uh, led you to kind of where you're at now. And if you could yeah. just explain, kind of, you know, obviously you're 24 now. How did like it get to the place where you are now, and what's mm-hmm. kind of the next steps going forward after? I mean, because you've yeah. talked about how you need to have a a stem cell transplant, right? How did that kind of how did you get to that place? Yeah. So basically. Fortunately, I've got a really good doctor who is, he's really on the ball with um, having backup plans. He has like backup plan upon backup plan upon backup plan. so good to have that, yeah. Yeah. So sort of I, at age 24, yeah, realized that I had exhausted all conventional therapies and it got to the point that my doctor and I were having some pretty difficult conversations. Mm. They were things like um, not compatible with life were mentioned you know um things in regards to the long-term effects of untreated Crohn's disease yeah so essentially if you leave Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis untreated it can progress to things like bowel cancer and it can also result in death I mean yeah in a lot of cases where it's severe enough it will result in death if you don't treat it because you end up with bowel perforations, sepsis, all sorts of complications. So we were having quite a few difficult conversations about what we do next. And he'd always had a backup plan. There was always something that he had up his sleeve. And then it kind of got to the point where there was nothing, that he didn't have anything. And the only thing that we could think of was a stem cell transplant. Now, he had been doing some research, not research, but he'd been looking into stem cell transplants for autoimmune diseases Mm. because over in Europe, they do it. And over in America, they do it. Oh, really? So, yeah. So it's, um, it's basically, it's a bone marrow transplant and he'd been looking into it for a little while. And he always mentioned to me that it was on the cards. It was something that we, we, we thought it could help me in the future. So it was always on the cards. Um, 
he always would like, I'm just trying to think of exactly how it happened, to be honest, because give me two seconds. I'm just trying to think of how it happened. Because you've had, you had to, did, I mean, because you've also had a, a, a stoma surgery. Is that something that you always knew might be the case that might happen down the road because of obviously yes. you've had it for a long time? Yeah. So I always knew that at some point in life I was going to end up with some sort of stoma. I didn't right. know what sort of be. But basically every time I was put to sleep for surgery, I was told you may or may not wake up with a stoma. And I remember waking up every single time patting around on my belly trying to stoma. Scary. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. They're like, what are you doing? And I was like, do I have a stoma? When I was coming out of anesthetic. And yeah, they'd never given me a stoma. But then I started to develop perianal disease. So right. unfortunately, for some reason, I have this really aggressive form of Crohn's that mm. they haven't I don't think that many doctors have experience with because it's not something you see very often. I've got a lot of extra intestinal manifestations. So right. basically, basically, I have Crohn's in my mouth, in my esophagus, in my stomach, in my small intestine, in wow. my rectum, on my skin, in my eyes, it's like, on my, like everywhere, in my joints. It is like I'm literally more Crohn's than I am Jordan these days. So, yeah. So because of that, <clears throat> sorry, with the aggressive nature of it, basically it wasn't a surprise that I developed perianal disease, but I guess I'd lived so long without it. And then all of a sudden to get fistulas and abscesses, it was just like, what is going on? Horrible. So, yeah. So in order for me to have this transplant, which I've actually, I've actually got a meeting this afternoon on um, like a telehealth Zoom meeting with the hematologist. So I'll find out wow. what the goal is at. So it's going to be a big, it's a big day. It's today, big actually. Meeting. Yeah, it's a big, big day. My yeah. God. I'm very, very nervous. But basically, I, in order for me to have the transplant, I need to not have a risk of sepsis. And with fistulas and abscesses comes the risk of sepsis. And because yeah. when I have a transplant, my entire immune system is going to be annihilated it's not going to exist anymore any sort of little infection in my bum is would result in death so we had to defunction me as my surgeon would put it so we thought that by doing a loop colostomy that would defunction me it would mean that I no longer have to pass stool through my bum and hopefully give that area a rest and decrease that risk of death during the transplant so we did that thinking it would work Unfortunately, just me being the human version of Murphy's Law, the loop doesn't work. Basically, I get a lot of overflow because it's actually two stomas in one. Yeah. So I get a lot of overflow from one stoma into the other and then it passes into my rectum and I use my bum more than my stoma. But in saying that, my most recent MRI showed an improvement in my perianal disease. So even though it's not doing a lot, it's definitely doing something. Um, but honestly, as much as it's not like it, and it, it's caused more issues than it's solved, I will probably have to say that my stoma is the best decision I've ever made in my life. Just because it's helped with the perianal um, disease, obviously. Yeah. And if it's only a tiny bit of improvement, that's that's enough for me. It's like I say, it's caused more issues, and that's that's just because I have all of these complications. I don't. I always, I'm always hesitant to say that it caused issues, 
But it's just because I have all these complications. It's not it's not because stomas cause these issues normally. Yeah. It's just, it's just my thing. Um, because I'm always hesitant to say that because then people go, oh, that sounds really bad and I don't want to get a stoma now. And it's like, no, honestly, that probably won't happen to you. Your yeah. stoma will literally change your life. Like it will change your life. And I have never felt more confident. This is why I love my stoma to bits and I'm so happy I did it. I've never felt more confident and comfortable in the skin that I'm in. I've wow. never felt more myself than I am with my colostomy. I think that's such an important point. That's something that obviously that I talk about as well is that when you've been really, really unwell for such a a period of time, even me, a year was long enough, but when you've been really unwell for a period of time, it's like anything that can make you feel slightly better means so much to you. And I think that's what people don't get when they think about stomas. If like, for instance, obviously we've spoken online and stuff about this whole Matthew Perry comment thing. I think why he doesn't appreciate maybe having it as much as maybe me or you appreciate having it is because he hasn't been through through that whole thing of being so unwell you can't leave your house you can't do this you can't do that so just the fact that you can then start to do a few more things because of the stoma you you begin to actually appreciate and love your body so much more because then you're actually so grateful that you've been given even a, a, a better lease of life that's the whole point like, you know what was interesting someone actually commented on one of my tiktoks and they i got into a little bit of a um keyboard warrior fight oh, with them the and time. i ended up but do you know what they said to me? They said, let's be real. Stomas are not fun. Everybody knows that. Oh. And I was just, I was, I was like, do you have a stoma? That's yeah, not, not the point, is it really? Not, like, yeah. And if you do not have a stoma, you are not, you have no right to make that statement. Exactly. Because, You've not been in that position. Look, I'm sure there are people out there who, like if, if we had the choice to have a stoma or not have a stoma, we would choose to be healthy and not have to have a stoma. But at yeah, the of end course. of the day, we don't have that choice. So no. what the only choice that we have is to either be negative or positive about our stoma. And I'm sure all of us could sit here and talk about our negative experiences, mm. but that doesn't take away from the positives that for so many people, it's given them their life back. I just think it's, it's about like the negatives have been uh, laid out for so long. We've heard, we know the negatives. We've heard yeah. them over and over again. Like, why yeah. can there not just be a little bit of positivity instead? Because if you're always negative in life about yourself or also your stone, whatever, it's going to be such a long and depressing time. And it's already shit enough as it is. So why not try to find some of the positives yeah. in it to lift yourself up a bit, you know, because... You, it's just there's just no point just fester. some people just love to fester like in yeah. the awfulness of it all and I just don't yeah, think it gets you anywhere that's yeah it's not gonna make and you that, feel better why me why me I mean look I have times where I'm like why me and that's totally that is justifiable and those feelings are totally valid everyone has the right to feel that but there has to come a point where you kind of have to accept that things have happened to you and you have to accept that they've already happened. You can't change that. But what you can change is your attitude towards it. Like mm-hmm. when I was there, every time I would go under anesthetic for a surgery, I would say to them, if you're going to give me a bag, don't wake me up. Yeah. And yeah. I look I look back at 15-year-old me who said that to my surgeon at the time. And I just think even like even 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, the representation for ostomies in the Not media bad. and whatnot, None of it. There was 
there was very, very little representation and very, very little positives on the internet. So I guess at that time, it would make sense that I was like, oh, don't bother waking exactly. up. But now, I, it got to a point where I started to see representation for people with ostomies. I started to see some really positive stories. And I think I got to the point where I was like, I just want some relief. And mm. that's as do you know what? Maybe it's not such a bad thing. And I just think that imagine, like, just imagine being somebody who is about to get an ostomy and you search celebrities with an ostomy bag. Exactly. That's me. Yeah. That's what annoys me the most because we all do it. I did it before my surgery. I was like typing celebrities with, and I was really glad that I saw in the UK. I don't know if you've seen her over here. We have somebody who's a, um, like a radio presenter and her name's Adele Roberts. Um, but she's quite a big figure like in the UK and she actually recently had a stoma bag but she's been doing really positive talks and I saw that she had had her stoma done and she was talking really positively about and I that made me feel so much better about what was going to happen to me absolutely and look people absolutely have the right to share their negative experiences that's absolutely yeah exactly I, I think in like in in Matthew Perry's case for example he has every right to share his negative experiences mm-hmm. because no one can tell him how to feel about it. But when it comes to spreading misinformation, like mm-hmm. things that are not true and, you know, like just the, the way that it's phrased, I think he had an opportunity to, I guess, make people feel better about their ostomies because obviously he didn't enjoy having his. No. So he could to improve other people's experiences with their ostomies but instead he chose to shine a negative light on it and like I say everyone is entitled to share their experiences and I'm glad he shared the negatives in some way because that was his personal experience but I just feel like the whole thing had this negative undertone and it kind of made those of us with an ostomy feel like we're just some consequence we we did something to deserve this and now we've got this ostomy and even the comment about ileostomies and suicide. Yeah, this is the thing is I don't like the whole thing of him. You, I mean, I know everyone says, well, he didn't say it, his therapist is, but why did he need to rephrase what his therapist had said about trying to scaremonger him about having a permanent ileostomy? I, like, I don't want to be used, like I have, mine's permanent. Yeah. I don't want to be used as somebody who's there to scare drug addicts into not taking drugs. Yeah. Like I, I'm quite like, okay like I I have a good life I'm not sorry he's booking a bookstore yesterday and the book the bookstore lady looked at me like what the heck I don't think that he's actually given like as well like he said his experience but I don't think he's given the proper background of that experience like for instance if you are taking drugs and you're drinking every day your experience with a stoma bag is going to be very very different to those who are not doing that like obviously you're not going to be changing Mm -hmm. your stoma regularly if you're doing lots of drugs and drinking like and then think you're going to have accidents and things are going to happen but if you're just like sober then yeah you're taking proper care of yourself it's just that's just common knowledge exactly it's a very different with that background information, though, it kind of paints the full picture where it's not just like people with an ostomy bag yeah. wake up with shit on. And yeah. look, do you know what? Deny, I'm not discrediting the fact that maybe he did wake up with shit on his face a number of times. But say background. Know, I don't know how on earth that happens, but like, how does it get 
near your face, but not discrediting that it didn't happen to him. But yeah, the background information is important. You have to, and also if you're having all of these issues, that's kind of a sign that your appliance isn't working for you and you need a new appliance. You need a new bag system or you need to be using different products so that these things aren't happening. But I do think as well, obviously, like this kind of happened to me as well. I think when you're first in the hospital and you, and I don't know if this happened to you as well, when you're first in the hospital and you have your stoma bag and everything and, you, and you're waking up for the surgery, there's this kind of expectation that other people are meant to sort it out for you. Like, I, oh, I, I don't want to touch it. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I need this. I need a nurse. I need somebody else to yeah. do it. Like I was so, I mean, I wouldn't even touch my stoma for like, the first month I, I I kept getting my mum to help do it or like a nurse and he says that in his yeah. as well he's like you know you needed nurse I needed nurses to keep doing it and I think that he's only sharing that snippet of what it's like when you first have the surgery done and not the whole like adjustment phase when you go home or maybe he yeah, just did adjust to it because he's used to being Matthew Perry not Matthew Perry with a stoma bag like yeah that's and the thing is when you first come out I mean personally in my experience I was uh, I knew that there were people who wouldn't even look at their stoma when they wake up. And look, I, I don't blame them. I, it's such an adjustment. Yeah. But I knew that there were people like that. And I thought, I don't want to be one of those people because I want to, I if I don't look at it when I first wake up, I'm never going to look at it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I was you- like, I, so I, I like for me personally, I just knew that I was going to have to face it. Otherwise I never would. So I decided at that point that as soon as I woke up, nobody was going to touch my stoma except me. And I, so basically still to this day, no one's changed my bag. Wow. That's amazing. But I guess, cause you had all of this time and you, like you said before, you knew that it was going to happen. You had, a, I mean, you had a lot of time to kind of research, prepare, understand it. Yeah. It's so, and that's other things. Well, stomas given in different circumstances, create different yeah. experiences. There's the planned stomas, there's the emergency stomas, you know, everybody, and our experiences mm-hmm. were very different in that aspect, but you know, like, it just gives you more time to prepare, and I'm I do get envious yeah. sometimes of people who had that that time to like really understand oh, it. I'm ve- I consider myself to be very very lucky in that aspect, and um, I look at people who didn't even know what a stoma was, and they wake up with a stoma, and they're like, "What the heck is this?" Yeah. So I, and that's why when I when I tell people that I have never let anybody touch my stoma, I always tell people that as more of a it was just, it was my way of maintaining control over some aspect of my disease. It was a control thing. Yeah. Whereas I know that there are people who wake up and can't even look at it. And that is totally like, that is so valid. I mean, you're literally looking at your intestines. Yeah, it's, it's not a it's, nice thing to see. <laughs> no. And if, if you've never, I guess, because I've, I grew up in a medical world, all I know is medical things. That's, that's mm. the world I grew up in. I'm desensitized to all of that. Seeing, you know, intestines, seeing all of that stuff is just so normal for me now that, pardon me, sorry, it would be like a nurse seeing a stoma, like a nurse who sees stomas every day and then getting a stoma. They would, they, do you know what I mean? They'd be desensitized to seeing stomas because I grew up in that world. I'm a bit desensitized to it. So I was incredibly lucky and it also gave me the opportunity to, test out products on my skin before I had the stoma oh wow so you actually were testing your stoma products before you had your stoma that's yeah wow that's amazing I ordered so many samples and I'd already decided what bag system I wanted 
Um, so when I went into the hospital, I saw the stoma nurse. She marked me up and I was like, okay, this is the system I'm using. I'm going to be using a two-piece, coloplast, blah, 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 blah. But I'm, and it was just... Trust me, like, like okay. what? How does she... Because I remember oh. when I saw my stoma nurse, oh, well, I was like high off my face on drugs when I saw mine. Yeah. I just sat there and she just talked at me and I was just thinking, am I here? Where am I? What is this room? <laughs> like, I just couldn't take it in. I was like in shock. I was just sat there just completely like on another yeah. planet. But it must have been so much easier when you knew everything and you went in there. The nurse must have been like, oh, what a relief. I've got somebody that actually knows and I can talk to you yeah. properly about this Absolutely. stuff. Exactly. And you know what, though? I wouldn't have half the knowledge of stomas that I have without TikTok. Yes. So Social media is just everything, isn't it? And that's why I'm so, I think it's so important that creators like yourself and myself continue to make videos about these things. Because without that, even though I knew about stomas beforehand, in the months leading up to it, I spent a lot of time on TikTok watching videos. Um, and watching creators like yourself because I was just curious. I knew that I was going to end up with a stoma. And I think that, you know, social media played a big part in educating me. And, yeah, with, without social media, I would have had no idea what I was doing. So that's why I keep making videos because I just hope that someone else who's in that position one day can look at them and go, hey, I didn't know this beforehand, but I know this now and I feel more prepared when the time yeah. comes to Roma. And that's what I love as well the most about social media is that, uh, like, I was talking about this the other day uh, as well, just saying kind of like how I didn't have those people to look up to uh, and, and yeah. it didn't seem like any, there was going to be any maybe celebrities that were going to come into that space. So I thought, well, you know, if there isn't anybody like that, then I'll be that person for other people. Yeah instead like I feel like that's what me and you are like it's like we didn't have these people to look up to so we were like we're both quite confident like women and yes. we're both very like very like matter of fact and I feel like we we and not everybody has obviously that natural like that confidence to talk about their situations all that matter of factness so I feel like both me and you were kind of like okay we're gonna just put it out there and we're gonna inspire other people and help other people when we didn't have that ourselves maybe when we were going through those experiences. Now going forward, looking forward and everything, how are you feeling about what's going to come next? And like, you know, how is, how is that, how has everything that's been going on basically this whole year just been on your mental health and everything like that? I'm very nervous about my transplant. It's such a a big a surgical procedure. It's literally a big process for like a two-year recovery period. It's going to be two years. I think turn off your camera might help with the with the reception. Just switch off the of my life that I'm created for. So I'm very nervous, but I do feel like it's just a small bump in the road a small blip in the radar okay is that any better yeah okay yeah I think so let's just do that bit again okay. so that I can hit see if we can hear it better yeah, yeah 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 okay um so yeah I guess I'm pretty nervous about everything that's coming up for me I'm the stem cell transplant is a pretty big 
procedure. It's not a surgical procedure. It's just a, um, I guess it's something that is done over a period of weeks and it's very intense on your body. So I'm pretty nervous about it. And it's about two years recovery period. And during that time, I'm going to be, you know, significantly incapacitated. So I am incredibly nervous. But at the same time, I feel like it's just a small blip in the radar. It's going to be a small bump in the road. And in the grand scheme of things, if it's, you know, two years is really just, it's only two years. If it gives me the rest of my life, then I'm, you know, I'll get yeah. through it. Yeah. And um, what was I going to say? Oh, I was going to say something, but I've forgotten. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm honestly, I'm pretty nervous. And this entire year has just been, it's been a bit of a whirlwind because it's gone from like everything has just declined so rapidly in the last year. And I guess I just, I knew it was coming, but I just didn't expect it to happen this quickly. I expected that maybe by age 30, I'd be in this position, but it's happened a lot quicker than I expected. So it's been, it's been hard on my mental health, but I'm very lucky because I have such an amazing support team. I've got I don't even know how to word it. I think that I am privileged in almost every area of my life except for my health. So I guess even though it sucks having poor health, I have everything else in life to be grateful for. So even though it's been hard on my mental health, I've had the most amazing people around me to make it that little bit easier. Yeah, that definitely helps. It's all about having like a very close support team around you. It's just, it means so much to you when you're going through such hard times with your health. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just... (laughs) Brilliant. Well, I hope that you are going to be all... Well, I mean, does it does it mean like after you've had your stem cell, does that mean that then your Crohn's will it will it continue? Like, how will that how will it help with your Crohn's stem cell transplant? The long story short of it is that because Crohn's is an autoimmune disease, the hope is when they remove all of my or they kill off all of my stem cells, all of my immune cells, all of my bone marrow, they then replace it with either my own or somebody else's. We haven't worked that out yet. It's they're hopeful that basically my immune system will get a complete reset and it won't have that sudden urge to attack my digestive system. So hopefully if it all goes to plan, I should be able to go into a drug-free remission. That's the hope. How? And then that will be for the rest of your life? You'll be without Crohn's or? Well, they, they hope so, but in the studies it should when they when they did a study of like conventional therapy, like your you know your normal treatments, versus you know fifty percent of the people had a stem cell transplant. Of those people who had a stem cell transplant, sixty percent of them responded, and overall they responded better than those with the who had conventional therapy. Mm-hmm. However, of that sixty percent who responded well, in five years' time, only forty percent of them were still responding. So, right. basically. We don't know how effective it's going to be long-term, but at this moment in time, if it gave me five years, that's longer than I'd get right now. So it's, we we kind of have to try, we just have yeah. to try it. Even yeah. It's got its, it's got a significant mortality rate. We've got to give it a shot. There's, the only other option is to just let me wither away and keep removing my bowel to the point where there's not enough bowel to sustain my life. So 
I guess that's why we've just got to give, we've got to give it a shot. We don't really have much of a choice. Yeah, absolutely not. We have to crack on and do this because I need you to keep being on TikTok forever and giving us all this positivity and amazingness that you give on there. It's just so, it's just amazing. Like I'm such awe of you and how you manage to keep yourself together. And well, obviously not like all the time. I'm sure you have your moments, but you do such a great job of like, you know, just showing the positives and yeah. And just like I was saying earlier, just not just wallowing in like the... Yeah, like you just you're just doing such a great job. Oh, thank you. That's how I feel when I look at your page. Oh, I love that. And it's so great. Obviously, we're in different sides of the world, but we kind of are sharing our experiences online. And it's nice that we've like managed to find each other through the algorithm of it all because like I have no idea how, but I know. I honestly don't know how, but I'm so glad we did. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I will let you enjoy the rest of your day and I'm going to bed. (laughs) Thank you so much. you have a good sleep then? (laughs) Lovely. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. See you, Holly. See ya. Bye. Bye.